This is an ABC podcast. G'day, Angus Furley here. Still on the road for the country hour today. This time we're at Benjaroop, close to where the Loddon River... We're up the road from Benjaroop, close to where the Loddon River joins the Murray River. And this is what you call proper floodplain country. And while most of the water has now moved on, it was only a matter of weeks ago that a large part of this landscape was covered in water. And I'm sitting upstairs, a farmhouse owned by Lindsay Schultz and his wife Lois on the edge of the Murray River, north of the Benjaroop Township. And Lindsay and his wife are able to drive into their property now, but for weeks and weeks the only way in was by Tinny, no road access at all. During the next hour you're going to hear from a series of local people about their experiences of that flooding that started in October 2022 and which has been likened to that what was termed one in 100 year event in early 2011 and that was almost to the day exactly 13 years ago now some of the themes we'll be looking at uh, where the water went should it have gone where it went how was the emergency managed by the authorities what was the damage done and what's the time and money now required to recover from that flooding and what could be done differently if it does happen again? Now, as I said, I am sitting at Lindsay Schultz's place and he's sitting across from me. Lindsay, welcome to the Country Hour. Uh, good to be here, Angus. Good to see you again. Lindsay, try and set the scene for me. I mean, I drove out here this morning and there is clear evidence of the flooding. There's still water around in low-lying areas. You can see debris on fences, up trees, high water marks. Uh, you can see what was a crop that's now just a black sort of sludgy mess what was it like at its worst well it was a different sort of beast to what happened in 2011 angus because in 2011 it was the 26th of january that we went under which was all the harvest was off this time it was uh, october and it was uh, and it was very slow it was held up by the crops so what happened in days sort of took weeks this time round, but um it, it was as big or bigger than 2011, but it was sort of a different different situation. Back in 2011, that road you drove down was torn out by the flood water coming down. Because it was coming so quickly. So it was coming so quickly. So we, we boated in there for four and a half months last time. Well, this time it's only been, well, nine weeks it was. But, yes, it's you get... Uh, you get sick up and out of tinnies, I can tell you. Okay, so a different sort of flood, but in terms of the sheer volume of the water, was it similar? Oh, well, in 2011, the, the big river wasn't in flood. The big river, the Murray, was in was high, but this time round, you know, we, we had some real issues with the Murray, along with the Loddon and the Bar and the... And the, you know the pyramid, and because all of that—the Bar Creek, the Pyramid Creek, the Loddon River—they were all trying to tip into a, a full Murray. Yep, that's it. They've got to get into the they, the the Loddon runs into the Little Murray. Uh, this time round, when the water did come down through through Murray West and uh, Benjaroop, we'd we'd put some uh, some breaches in there pr to prepare to let the water out, which was a great asset. So some deliberate breaches. De yeah, deliberately to, to try and keep the pressure off the banks. Last time it came that quick and it, it didn't happen, so it, the water got up higher last time, but only for a temporary time. But, um, look, you know, all in all, it's, it's, you know, it's happened. We haven't been flooded out 
you know, in 100 years when they've been flooded out twice in, what would you say, 12 or 13, 13 years? 13 years, yeah. So, you know, something's not quite right there and that's what we've got to get to the bottom of. Um, we've got a meeting next Monday in the, in the council chambers um, all, and hopefully um, all, the, all the decision makers will be there, but um, things are not looking too bright from a point of view of uh, the government, you know, funding the repair, the natural breaches. And I'll come back to that later in the show, Lindsay. We'll, we'll get you back as, as we move through about the fact that there are dozens, a hundred, however many there are, breaches in the levees throughout the floodplain and, and what happens to those breaches because obviously if they remain, another flood comes through, water goes straight out. So we'll, we'll come back to that. But you, you told me earlier that there was a positive this time around that the authorities were more responsive and more receptive to what locals such as yourself had to say during the flooding. Yes, I have to say, compared to um, 2011, uh, the running of the of the whole uh, thing was excellent. The, the, all of government bodies, the ICC and, and, and North Central Catchment Councils, um, everybody was communicating with each other um, every day. Day, like I would be talking to the ICC sometimes ten or twelve times a day. So everybody was talking to everybody and. Um, and I think that it was handled very, very well. And that was a contrast to 2011, so it sounds like perhaps people had learned from that experience. Yeah, I lost my voice in 2011 <laughs> arguing, <laughs> fighting, fighting to try and get some action. But anyhow, we all learnt by that one. But look, there's a lot to be learnt still. But look, it's, it's came and it's went or it's going. I've still got probably a third of our farm is still underwater but it is draining so and that's because you're right here on the murray and the murray's now gone down enough that the water will naturally drain off yeah well i've got uh, irrigation drainage into the into the river and along with a lot of farms but there's also a lot of farms that haven't so there is, there is still a fair bit of landlocked water uh but all the roads are now uh open so everybody uh, well there's a little bit of water running across our road you can still drive down it okay but all the roads are actually open, so that's what they, they said they do, and it's been done. Another point that a lot of people have been making about the way the water behaved this time is that the landscape is so different. A lot of irrigation infrastructure, banks and channels and all of those sorts of things have been removed. So how, how hard was it to predict how the water would behave when, when the topography of the land was so different? Well, that's right. The, the, the number, one, number four channel, which was a, a major bank, that we used back in 2011 is now gone but back when this all happened I got a, a text from Camille White from the CMA and she uh, sent it through to me and we pulled a meeting together in the Benjeroo Pool there was about 120 people at it and I read that text out to her about how much water was coming over the spillway at Lanakuri uh, and explained exactly what was going to happen and I think it basically did happen to exactly you know what I said it happened although it it was a lot happening a lot slower, but people that were well prepared, um, you know, were still dry, and the people that weren't quite well prepared, well, they they got um, the houses went under. And as we mentioned earlier, the, the Loddon River brings water through this part of the world, but it's got those tributaries, the Bar Creek and the Pyramid Creek, and they both ran a lot of water this time, didn't they? They sure did. Yeah, all the water that all that water around Lanakuru, Bendigo, all that area, all got to go under the Bendigo Bridge, but. The Bredenburg Bridge has got is a new bridge since 2011, and it had been raised 53 centimetres. So 
the capacity of water that could get under the Benjaroo Bridge wasn't an issue this time, but it's always been an issue in the past. And, Lindsay, I know in the Benjaroop area there was a crew, wasn't there? You were involved in the coordination, a, a group of local people just sort of doing the rounds, responding to whoever needed help, sandbagging, checking levees, whatever it may have been. Yes, it was a, it was a, a good effort, a community effort by everybody. Lindsay, I'll get you back later in the show, but I'll, uh, we better keep moving. So thanks very much for having no. a chat and stick stick around and we'll talk talk shortly. No worries, Angus. Thank you. Bye. Lindsay Schultz there, a farmer at Benjaroo, talking about his experiences of the flood water. Also, I should say, a local flood warden, clearly with a lot of local knowledge. And thanks too, Lindsay, for letting us set up for the country hour on your, uh, your front deck. Let's keep mo- moving now. And I'm joined now on the country hour by Rosemary Murray. Rosemary, welcome to the country hour. Thank you, Angus. You're a dairy farmer? Yes. Talk me through what the flooding was like for you, because I think where you're located is on the Bar Creek just before it joins the Loddon River? That's right, yes. And, uh, well, we knew it was all coming, slowly as it was, and we got our dairy herd out a couple of days before the 26th of October, which is when... I, I left the farm. So you trucked your cows out? Yes. Where did you take them? Um, New South Wales to friends over in New South, Morton's. Yeah, so they went onto the dairy onto their dairy farm? Yes. And then you had to start milking those th- your cows through their dairy? Yes, a rotary dairy. That's interesting when you've come from a herringbone dairy. Yeah. And then we had another herd arrive as well. And a th- someone else's herd, a third yes, herd? Yes, so we were doing a, at least more than 550 cows at one stage. It'd take a while to get through the milking then, I imagine. Yes. And, and how did the I mean, tough for yourselves, but tough for the cows as well. How did they handle that disruption? Uh, not that well. It took a long time to get them, you know, trained to go into a rotary dairy. And there was plenty of mud everywhere. Oh, sure. And, and there's plenty thing, of mastitis too. <laughs> mm. Yes. Okay, so you took the cows out. What was happening back at the farm? Um, well, my brother Bill has take he's taken uh, all the calves over to his place and the two-year-olds and whatever. So the calves have just come back um, a couple of days ago. The two-year-olds won't get back until we don't know when, because the farm has been, you know, uh, brown paddocks everywhere, and the water's still on some of the paddocks that we can't get to, and it looks still. like. Yes, and, and, a, and I don't know how we're going to get that water off because the channels aren't there to pump into. And with the connection program, uh, the pipe, we'd only just done our connection program and the pipes came up out of the ground. There was one about 30 metres long. So they just oh, floated they just, out of the ground? They just came up out of the ground and a few other spots. So we haven't been able to sort out what's happening up there yet because we haven't been able to get there. Yeah, so as you said, your cow's only just making their way back to the farm now. We're talking almost three months on. Yeah, the 5th of January they came back and uh, I think they were pretty happy. They liked to be home in their own spot. So at the farm, the house and the dairy were okay, but a lot of the rest of the country was underwater? Um, Christopher said there was probably 95% of it underwater, but it did drain away from a couple of the more of the paddocks down from the house. Um, so the well, house. What was would have fine. happened if you hadn't got the cows out? 
Well, we could, we knew what was coming. Yeah. We we had it last time, and yeah, we got those out only a few hours before it went. But this time we had two or three days up our sleeve. Now I think you you moved out as well, Rosemary. Yes, I moved out to New South Wales to friends out there and uh, reported for duty at the dairy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure they, were, they welcomed an extra hand. Uh, yes, yes. So. And, but, but your son stayed back <clears throat> at the farm? No, no, no. He, he went out okay. to New South and stopped with um, Simon's And family. when he did go back to the farm, how was he able to get access? Well, he came in by boat... Um, and motorbike because some of the road I think was um, you know not covered by water into our place but uh, in the end that he kayaked in and that would take him possibly nearly two hours to get in just to get in just to get in for about three miles and that would have been a battle to keep that up well that's right yes and and so he's got a lot of a lot of work ahead of him to try and get the farm back up and running again there's a few a few sayings around flooding rosemary a a, a common one is that people say that fires unite and floods divide uh in that in some cases i guess in a fire everyone's in it together but sometimes in flooding perhaps some people are acting in the greater good and some people are acting in their own best interest do you think that's what what possibly was happening in some parts Oh, I was away, so I'm not really sure. But since I've come home, uh, both Krista and I have had suggestions that we need to sell up and get out. What do you make of that when that's said to you? uh, Well, it's our decision. It's Mm. no one else's. And uh, I'm not particularly pleased about it. But I'd just like to say that Krista and I are going to battle on because our farm has been the Murray family have owned that farm for at least 122 years so you just don't up and go you try and battle on i know it's going to be a battle with what's what's happening and if there's no government help and if they the water management can't can't fix the problems further up and you know and they need to do that the water management is a problem in this state yeah, big, big problems, but do you see any, any obvious solutions? Uh, well, I think it's got to go back further. Of course, I'm a great advocate for dams. Well, I don't know how that's going to go doesn't down. doesn't seem to be very politically palatable, does it? <laughs> it well, you'd have to save a mosquito somewhere, wouldn't you, <laughs> I think? But I, I don't know. That's just how I think. I know I've talked to Peter Walsh about this over the years, that dams are the way to go, but an uphill battle trying to get it to happen, I feel. Rosemary, we better keep moving, but thanks for having a chat. Thank, Appreciate it. Thanks, Angus. That was Rosemary Murray there, who farm, dairy farms with her son Chris, not too far away, just uh, on, the, on the Bar Creek where it just comes into the Loddon River and talking through what they had to do, that pre-emptive action they took, trucking their cows out to a, a friend's far, dairy farm across the, ri- the river into New South Wales and milking them there for several months before the, the flood water cleared sufficiently for them to bring them back only a couple of weeks ago in early January. You're listening to The Country Hour with Angus Furley and joining me now is Nan Marie Scurry, Managing Director of ECS Botanics, which is a medicinal cannabis farm 
not too far away at all at Murrabit West. Nan, welcome to the Country Hour. Thank you. It's lovely to be here. Now, Nan, you're, as I said, the managing director of this medicinal cannabis farm. Talk me through, it, it was only built a couple of years ago, talk me through your understanding at that stage of your flood risk and then what actually transpired back in October. Um, yes, yeah, certainly. Uh, so we constructed the facility in 2020. Um, so when we came on site and you know we had a look at the farm before we purchased it, we were aware of the 2011 floods and we were also aware that the farm was not impacted by the 2011 floods and that across the other side of the road had been impacted. So was it flooded at all? In not, 20 at, not, at not at all. In fact, the road in front of our farm became the main road for the dairy trucks to go through because the other road was underwater. So we felt fairly confident that we were okay. Having said that, when we constructed the facility, we did take into account the 100-year um, the flood line, so all the electrical and everything was taken above that height. <clears throat> um, anyway, then, you know, obviously when, the f when we were aware that the, uh, the floods were, c were coming, um, we were fairly confident we'd be okay. And it was at that point in time that we were made aware that the channel had been removed and the, thing, the very thing that had protected us from the floods in 2011 was not actually there again because of the connections project so that's what i was talking it. about with lindsay before the, the topography had changed yeah yeah so um so we had a false sense of security and once we found out that you know the, the um the channel wasn't there anymore we realized we were probably in trouble um lindsay was really good about keeping us informed and you know we were new to the area and um, obviously needed to get that information so we built a levy bank um, around a portion of the farm, the production facility. The farm is 170 acres. We couldn't pull the levy bank around that, but we built a levy bank around about seven acres <coughs> to a, protect a the facility. The clock it it was okay because we kind of knew, you know, if Ichika was flooding and the Murray was maybe going to come down and the Loddon was maybe going to come, but it was pretty like a, low, a relatively low risk, but because it's a very expensive facility, we decided to invest in the levy bank. And then about <coughs> probably a week before. Um, we had a meeting at the Benjaroo Hall and Lindsay basically let me know in no uncertain terms that we were in trouble and that the water was going to come. And so we arranged for four very large excavators to come and... Well, we first got the, the wall surveyed and that was really interesting because it's amazing how deceptive your eye is. We thought we were okay, but actually the wall was all different levels once we had it surveyed. So we had it raised um, to 1.6 metres, which was about 300 mils above the flood level. And that's a pretty substantial bank. Sub very substantial, yeah. And it was done in a hurry, <clears throat> but it was. If we hadn't done it, we would have got flooded. So that was great. Everybody mucked in to help. Um, the waters then came. Um, obviously, a new experience for us. We had a couple of employees that stayed on the farm. Now, because we grow medicinal cannabis, the plants needed to continue to be watered and fed. So luckily, we had a few people that were happy to stay, and they moved in with me and lived on the farm and helped us. Um, but when the water came, we realised that because the levee banks were relatively new, they weren't really very robust. They were big, but not ne necessarily. They hadn't so been they hadn't there had long time. time to settle, settle, settle yeah. So um, I made many calls to Lindsay and Brett, uh, Brett Parks, who has the excavator, um, over the, I guess, the first 24 hours of the flood, saying, I'm really nervous. Some, we're getting some seepage. We're getting some erosion. And Lindsay said, don't worry. <coughs> um, you organise some builders' black plastic and I'll organise some sandbags and we'll get this sorted. So I phoned into Swan Hill and got a delivery of Builders Black Plastic, um, which the army actually brought in with some empty sandbags. And the next thing I knew, there were the, <laughs> these people arriving 
<clears throat> on boats. There was a local community and they were just literally like an invasion, but a good invasion of local community people coming to help. And they, <clears throat> over the course of two days, they laid out all the black plastic, which was about one and a half kilometres um, of black plastic, full sandbags and, and covered the, you know, and held the plastic down with the sandbags. So that was amazing. It was an incredible, um, you know, community effort. <clears throat> and um, I think, you know, it's, it sounds like not a lot, but the water, it was flood water. It was stinking. There were people up to the armpits standing in the water, putting that plastic down. These are people that didn't know us. Um, you know, they'd heard of us. Obviously, everybody knows about the medicinal cannabis farm, but they didn't know us personally. But they gave up two days to help us and put that plastic down. So, And I think, you know, we, we'll never know whether it would have gone without it, but it's certainly we know that that levy bank is still there now, so, and, the far, and the farm was saved. Why do you think there was such a response to your, to your plight? I think maybe they all like the medicinal cannabis farm. Now, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm only joking. Um, you know, we, we hire... We, we, you know, we started, as I said, in 2020, we started with five or six people. We now have well over 60 people that are, you know, living in the community that, you know, their jobs were on the line to a certain extent. So I think there was a certain, you know, goodwill towards the facility because there's a new, a new industry in the area and people wanted to make sure that it was looked after. But I also think it's how country folk operate, actually. I, um, I, you know, I come from Melbourne and I could not imagine that happening in Melbourne people that you've never met before pitching yeah. in to help yeah and the best part was we made a lot of good friends um in in the process you know when you're all mucking in together and it actually ended up ending on cup day so we had a sort of semi sweepstake and <clears throat> you know everyone got got a horse and, and it, it just and a couple of beers and, and there was a lot of camaraderie a lot of goodwill and out of that we actually found that two of those people had pontoon boats and they offered to bring my staff in my employees in to work Thereafter, so from that day on, we had two of the local community actually couriering or ferrying our staff in, and that might sound like not a big deal either, but it actually was a full day job because they'd have to start at six o'clock in the morning, and then every hour they would be bringing people because we could only bring, you know, five or six people at a time. So that was amazing. And then the other thing that was really incredible was, <clears throat> you know, Brett Parks and Lindsay because. I'm not a farmer. This is my first endeavour in farming. I'm not used to floods. I've never been in a flood before. So having a person, people that you could phone at 2 o'clock in the morning and say, I'm really concerned, you know, we, there's water springing up here. And, um, you know, getting that help through counselling. But then also, you know, Brett actually drove his excavator all the way from Benjaroop to our farm, which I think must have taken him a good hour um, to come and repair levy bank in the middle of the of the flood, so just incredible support from everybody. And I, I was speaking <coughs> to Brett yesterday, and he wanted to be here today, but just just too busy. But certainly the excavator drivers were, were sort of <laughs> saviors during those times. Yeah, they? yeah. And then I think after that, I mean, I was a bit disappointed at the time because I felt like the the government were absent. Like I got phone calls from people to say, are you okay? And as soon as I said we went flooded, they were like, yeah, you're okay. And I'm going, well, maybe not. You know, I can't get in and out of my farm. I make a medicine. I need to get product to customers. But then once we had another meeting with the council, and which was probably uh, probably a month after the initial floods with the local people, it was like turning on a light switch. And all of a sudden, we had the, the CFA, you know, the, the roads guys, Golden Murray Water, everybody was there to try and help us. And, and as soon as we, we were able to access local, um, you know, Shire support or local CFA support, it was a very different story and it was amazing again.
heartwarming story now. <laughs> Thanks Thank for you. sharing. That's no, a pleasure. That was Nan Marie Scurry there, Managing Director of ECS Botanics, which is a medicinal cannabis farm just up the road from where I am. That was potentially saved from flooding by a big community response, a whole bunch of people pitching in uh, to, as we said, sandbag, lay out builders' plastic and stop that flood water breaching that, that fresh bank. Let's keep moving on the country hour because we need to get to news headlines shortly. But before that, I'm joined by Colin Myers, who is a farmer not too far from here, downstream of the Kerrang Weirpool near the Kerrang Township and also a flood warden for that lower Loddon district. Colin, welcome. Hi, how are you? Well, thanks, Colin. Talk me through what the floods meant at your place. The floods took out 80% of our property. Um, we didn't have the house flooded. That was something we would be able to protect, and we, we saved about oh, 60 acres out of 565. Did you have to destock the property? We destocked half the stock, took them out elsewhere, and we kept um, some stud ones back there at the house. Okay, and what was that experience like compared to 2011? 2011, uh, we all went under, we took all stock off. So this time we've saved a little bit more. Um, we are a bit more prepared. We've set up a system of um, three banks before it gets to the house. Um, unfortunately, we two broke and we fixed one. Colin, you're... You're downstream of where the Pyramid Creek joins the Loddon River. Yes. I've spoken to a lot of people in the past week or so who farm along the Pyramid Creek and were really, really badly flooded and in some cases much worse than 2011. Are there concerns over the water, over the way that the water flows into the Pyramid Creek were managed? Well, it's been managed over a longer period um, in the way that we have cow swamp been dredged to the Kringweir pool that used to take a week and a half now it takes a day and a half to get down there we also have every stream from the Pyramid Creek to Daramox also dredged which drains that land there's other complications in the way that um, the hydrological survey said um, I think it was that one they said that if you, if you laser level 50% of your land, you'll have 50% more runoff. So the whole lot's just impounded over time and it's all directed into one spot, the Krangweer Pool. So that's our problem. Colin, we'll have to get to news headlines, but thanks that's for having right. a chat with the country. Art. Thank you. Colin Myers there who farms just downstream of Kerrang on the Loddon River and he's also a local flood warden. Well, it's just about to go 28 minutes to one, so let's get to news headlines now with Callum Marshall. Good afternoon, Angus. A 27-year-old Western Victorian man has been sentenced to three months in prison after he pleaded guilty to sexually assaulting a woman in her home in mid-2020. The county court sitting in Warrnambool heard Hamilton man Cameron Eitken went into a friend's bedroom and sexually assaulted her while she was asleep. Earlier this week, he took a plea deal to avoid a trial over a rape charge. He was also ordered to undertake men's behaviour change programs. Police say their net is rapidly closing on a man they are searching for following a violent home invasion which left a man with life-threatening injuries. In September last year, it is alleged five men entered a house on Sydney Court in Shepparton and assaulted two men inside. 
Police believe the man they are looking for is local and are urging him to come forward. A computer-generated image of his face is available online and anyone with information is asked to contact Crime Stoppers. Police say they're investigating a stabbing in a North Albury home yesterday. Emergency services were called to the Bank Street home about 5.50 in the afternoon and found a 19-year-old man with stab wounds to his chest. Police say the man is in a stable condition and was stabbed during a fight by another man who is known to him. They have seized a knife at the home for forensic examination and are now looking for a 24-year-old man they believe can assist with their inquiries. Anyone with information about the incident is urged to contact Crime Stoppers. Police are asking the public for help to locate a 16-year-old girl who went missing in South Gippsland at the end of last year. Arielle Palmer was staying at her family's holiday home in Inverloch when she left without telling anyone. She's believed to frequent Taralgon, Morwell, Warrigal and surrounding areas. One Thaggy Police Sergeant Robert Hardy says police spoke to Arielle over the phone weeks ago but she did not share her whereabouts and police have been unable to get in contact with her since. And that's the latest in news. For more, visit abc.net.au forward slash news. Thanks, Callum. Callum Marshall there with news news headlines. We'll head off to the Bureau very, very shortly, but just before that, some breaking news just coming through. And you may remember we spoke to a beekeeper earlier in the week about pretty strong frustrations that around straight state border closures due to varroa mite restrictions and not being able to move those beehives from New South Wales to Victoria. Well, Agriculture Victoria has just announced the borders are opening and that's happening from Monday the 23rd of January, next Monday. Bee- beekeepers with Victorian registered hives can apply for a permit to move those hives from New South Wales into Victoria. And that's come because of national acceptance that the state of New South Wales is free from the pest, apart from those areas with a 25-kilometre radius, within a 25-kilometre radius of an infected hive. Let's go to the Bureau now, where Senior Forecaster Michael Efron is standing by. Good afternoon, Michael. Good afternoon, Angus. What's coming up weather-wise, Michael? Yeah, really, uh, settled conditions today. We've got uh, light southeasterly winds uh, through much of the state tending variable uh, in the north. Uh, we do still have some patchy cloud cover over the southwest of the state, but it is starting to break up a, a bit. Also some cloud developing uh, along the eastern ranges as well. But overall, uh, looking at settled conditions today, apart from just an isolated shower or two in the far east, but uh, elsewhere, uh, plenty of sunshine through uh, inland parts. But in terms of temperatures, today we are looking at uh, fairly cool conditions for this time of year, still in the low 20s across uh, southern parts and through inland areas at tops of around uh, 26 to 29 degrees. Uh, in terms of warnings, we've just got the flood warnings still for the Murray, but other than that, all clear across the state. Uh, as we head into the weekend, we do see a low-pressure trough over New South Wales extending south, so that will trigger some shower and thunderstorm activity uh, each afternoon on Saturday, uh, that will extend into the northwest of the state, but otherwise uh, the focus of that will be uh, across the eastern ranges. And we're looking at warmer conditions as well, temperatures in the south into the mid-20s across the north, looking at the high 20s to low 30s. So uh, a warm and slightly unsettled weekend coming up, although for uh, a lot of the state we won't see uh, too much rainfall. Heading into Monday, we see uh, that pattern 
uh, continuing with the trough lingering across the state. So we'll see afternoon shower and storm activity again, particularly along the ranges. And temperatures are still getting into the high 20s or low 30s through the north, mid-20s across southern districts. Tuesday, I think, is when we'll see those showers and storms becoming more extensive. So likely to see that uh, impacting uh, most districts apart from the far northwest. And again, not too much change in terms of temperatures, looking at the mid-20s in the south, high 20s to low 30s across the north. Then on Wednesday, we are likely to see uh, northerly winds picking up a little bit ahead of uh, a weak southerly change extending from the west. So those northerlies will mean uh, warmer conditions across the state will be pushing into the mid-30s across uh, parts of the north. Elsewhere in the south, looking at uh, the mid to high 20s, but in the southwest, that change arriving a bit earlier, so only the low to mid-20s there. And then on Thursday, with that uh, southerly airstream extending across the state, we're looking at cooler conditions, particularly in the south, temperatures there in the low 20s and across the north, high 20s uh, to low 30s. Uh, mostly cloudy in the south, but uh, pretty sunny across the north. And then uh, next Friday, I think we'll see the wind starting to tend northerly again, ahead of uh, a stronger cold front likely to move through maybe late Friday or Saturday. But it does look like there's a um, fair bit of uh, wind with that system. Uh, so I think um, we'll see temperatures increasing to the high 30s uh, across a lot of the north in particular towards uh, the end of next week. Thanks very much, Michael. Thanks, Angus. That was Michael Efron there, Senior Forecaster at the Bureau, talking about what's coming up with a few storms about in days to come. You are listening to Angus Furley, broadcasting the country hour from a farm, Lindsay Schultz and Lois Schultz's farm, just up the road from Benjaroop on the Murray River, reflecting back on the flooding that was of October 2022, the damage it did, what's happened since then, and perhaps what may need to change in terms of uh, managing future flooding and we are looking at Loddon River flooding but we also want to highlight what's happened across the border into New South Wales and throughout the Riverina, very extensive flooding uh, along the Warkool River, the Edward River at Morlamine and all the various other streams in between and someone who was keeping on top of that flooding and keeping the community informed as the water made its way down those streams was Lloyd Polkinghorn, editor of the Kundurrook and Barron Bridge newspaper. Lloyd, welcome to the Country Hour. G'day, Angus. How are you going? Pretty well, Lloyd. And talk me through what you did during the height of that flooding in terms of trying to keep people abreast of, of a moving feast. Um, well, for me, it came down just getting back to basics and being out there on the ground to try and highlight what was happening in real time. Um, quite often, we find that sort of broader uh, broadcast of flood warnings actually create a lot of fear around um, for example 2016 in Barham there was you know lots of reports that Barham was flooding when really it's the low-lying areas out around uh, in the bush and, and so this time we had the likes of an evacuation order from Wallamine. Yeah, that's correct, and it's the same sort of thing. We are we are on a floodplain. They're quite slow-moving floods. They are having real impacts, uh, but I think it's important that people understand, you know, be able to look and see what's happening in real time. What did you make of the volume of water that, that came down the Warkall River or the Edward River and the Warkall River and then back into the Edward? I mean, I think... Uh, 
vocals at Morlamine said it was the highest ever recorded. Yeah, that's correct. Um, it exceeded 1956 flood heights. Um, but it's also important to note that the way the water moved changed dramatically in this event. <clears throat> communities through Gon and Malul had unusually high uh, water flows across their properties. Um, there is some speculation that works within the Kundruk Paracuta Forest that's been uh, designed to be art- artificially flooded with environmental water now. And so, yeah, there's a theory that a lot more water is coming through north or, sorry, east of the uh, Barramulamine Road, their, their flood heights were sort of lower than 74 flood, but, but downstream that actually exceeded it. And, um, yeah, so the water was moving in a, in a totally different fashion than it had before. What was, the damage, what was the damage that it did on farms? Because it came at a time both when Riverina farmers were looking to start their, their winter crop harvest and also get their summer rice crops in. Yeah, yep. No, it um, had some devastating impacts. Um, it was mixed depending on where you are on the floodplain, but there were producers who uh, lost their entire rice uh, sowing program and also lost their uh, cereals. You know, it was such a bumper year with uh, good rains and uh, huge yield potential. Uh, it was really devastating to see those losses. We also had farmers who, you know, their farms had remained relatively dry during 56 who had been totally inundated uh, with stock uh, completely displaced and the loss of all their feed. How did people manage their stock throughout that? Because a lot of people tried to get truck their stock out but then there were problems getting trucks in, finding a place to take them. How did people manage that? Yeah, it was a real challenge. Um, we saw a lot of roads being significantly um, impacted or cut off or having to be cut to actually alleviate flood water. Um, and like Nan said, it was community who came together and rallied to support. Um, we witnessed people, uh, you know, neighbours bringing in feed on tractors through floodwaters, just volunteering their time, taking time away from their own farms. Um, there was a classic example over near Malul where they actually had, um, you know, a team of volunteers who came in on stock horses swimming, you know, horses through floodwaters to move cattle that had been stuck on a, uh, a railway line. And, you know, these are people who just, you know, went above and beyond to help out people in need. And you know, there are endless stories, but the thing, the lengths that people went to to get get equipment in, get themselves in. Um, we spoke to Jeremy Morton on the Country Hour. I think he had a, a grain bagger helicoptered in because he had to start his winter grain harvest and he couldn't get trucks in or out, so he had nowhere to put the grain. Chop it in a, a grain bagger and bags, and I mean, lots of stories like that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's important to note that um, we need to get back in, or I feel we need to get back into a position of being more proactive when it comes to flood management. Uh, around Kundruk Barham, we saw an extraordinary effort by community, but I feel that 90% of that work wouldn't have had to have been done if we'd maintained the existing infrastructure. Um, we do live on a floodplain and we have these flood banks and things in place for a reason and I think it's really important that uh, communities are supported through government funding to actually maintain these and protect them. And we'll talk more about levies with, with Lindsay Schultz toward the end of the program, but does, do any state government authorities do anything to maintain the, the levy network? 
Um, there's been very little. Uh, we saw in Moolamine post-2016 uh, flood there was money awarded to do flood studies and look into the renewal of banks and yet here we are with another major flood and nothing has been done. Um, a classic example through uh, Kundruk Barham, uh, we've been losing flood banks through erosion. Um, there's been a rapid shift in erosion on the Murray and so that is imp impacting uh, flood banks which are critical to protect the community and it's putting community and their assets uh, at risk. And in terms of the levy bank system, no point patching up location A if you don't fix location B, I suppose. No, that's right. And um, when it comes down to this sort of reactive, it's it's he who with the, the biggest excavator or the biggest budget wins. Whereas I think if we have a strategic approach and actually be more proactive, everyone can sort of benefit from a unified uh, front to a flood. Better keep moving, Lloyd, but thanks for having a chat. Thanks, Angus. Lloyd Polkinghorne there, who's editor of the Kundrook Barron Bridge, and he spent those the, the, the height of the flooding um, travelling the flood effects of communities and trying to keep his listeners and, and viewers and readers abreast of what was happening at a more local level than perhaps was available from the authorities. Well, we are based here in the Ganawara Shire, and I'm joined now by Ganawara Shire Council Chief Executive Jeff Rowlandson. Good afternoon, Jeff. G'day, Angus. How are you? Very well, and Jeff, we're talking about specific communities, but perhaps you can give a, a council-wide perspective of the effect of the flooding. Yeah, and certainly, Angus, that's one of the first things that I uh, discovered when I came up here from uh, down central Victoria, where our farm is. Um, down where our farm is in the uh, Ingwood-Wedderburn area, the, the flows go through quickly. Um, with a fair bit of velocity and uh, do a fair bit of damage in a, an immediate sense. But the thing I've discovered up here, because I've been up here for uh, over 30 years now, is the uh, the slow um, impact of the flooding up here. So it's typically like 12 days from Lanakuri to Kerrang and typically about another three days down to Benjeroot. But, you know, it's the fact that we're talking about a, a rain event that occurred in mid-October and uh, there were pumps operating Monday this week to remove water to enable people to get back into a property. So it's the slow nature of the, the flood event down here and it's the culmination of the Avoca River, the Loddon River, um, the Pyramid Creek, as, as others have said, and the, and the Murray. And the way the water behaved was particularly slow this time, wasn't it, because it came in October when, after a, a bumper season, we had huge crops, massive amounts of, of grass, uh, and I guess that was the difference between this event and the January 2011 event which came after the majority of harvest had been completed and there, there wasn't all of that growth. Yeah and, and look the, the 2011 event you know we're dealing with about 190 to 210,000 megalitres coming from uh, Lanakuri and, and uh, but as uh, others have said like we're dealing with a, a, a lower Murray River at that point in time and the Murray River has a dramatic impact particularly down this lower Loddon area. Uh, this time we're dealing with about 140,000 megs but it was a dirty flood this one, a terribly dirty slow flood that had a uh, resounding impact on the community both in a cropping sense and the the damage to the uh, the harvest at that point wasn't really known. I know a lot of grain has been downgraded but also there have been some magnificent yield out there as well. Um, this particular time you know we've got around 40,000 hectares has been impacted but it's the duration of the event um, that's the main issue and from a council perspective it's about we, how we keep these um, communities connected so we've got around 350 kilometres of uh, roads that have been damaged and trying to get them repaired in time for people to do their harvest and then turn around at the same time because uh, about another two to three months time people will be starting to repair for, uh, for sowing of course so uh, it's, it's a 
a major uh, damage bill and something we've got to address pretty quickly. Have you got enough money from government to do that work? Look, state government and, and federal government have been pretty good uh, in that regard in assisting us, and they've, they've, they've been uh, coming up and, and are helping. I know this time around, uh, compared to 2011, things have been uh, a, a lot better in that regard um, to, to getting stuff repaired. So that's been, been beneficial for council and the community. I have heard the phrase used a few times, uh, build back better, where maybe it's an opportunity if there's been a road or a culvert or a bridge that's been damaged by the flooding, maybe it's a chance to, uh, in the case of a culvert, maybe double the capacity of that culvert. Is that on a priority for you? Yeah, certainly betterment is, is a, an issue. So things around, and there's also current standards, so where there were a number of like butt joint pipes and the like um, used, we don't use butt joint pipes anymore, so you wouldn't put that back. It'd be just like replacing the old Kingswood with uh, another Kingswood, you know, you actually got to, you know, build the current standards. Um, things like the Benjroot Bridge, which has been uh, constructed between floods, uh, Thanks to Lindsay's uh, encouraging me to raise the height of it, oh, we did, and uh, we got the uh, which which made a difference in this particular event. But I think also dealing with the community and understanding what that that uh, that betterment looks like. I think the other thing too, Angus, given the nature of the the terrain up here, you've got to be mindful that what action you take doesn't have an impact downstream. So we've got a. Uh, fall basically uh, in this country about one in 16,000. It is as flat as flat and for listeners out there if you just turn around and look at the doorway behind you which is sitting around about 2.1 metres that's pretty well the fall from Kerrang to, uh, to Benjeroub. It's very flat so that's why it takes so long to get away. Uh, back in 2011 it was the worst flood that anyone had ever seen anyone living uh, and I think it was termed it's one in 100 year flood. Do you think that created a bit of a false sense of security, that phrase, in that people thought, well, we've had that, it's one in 100 years, I won't see it again in my lifetime? Yeah, I often refer back to there'll be a horse race going somewhere in Australia today where there'll be a one in the 100 horse come home. Um, I think it's, uh, and I think Nan might have touched on it earlier, um, where it's understanding that we are living on a floodplain and, and this could occur. While we're getting these events like La Nina and El Nino um, and these changes in the um, in the uh, in the weather patterns, it's about being prepared. We do have um, pretty well 12 to 15 days and we get a bit of an understanding of what's coming down towards us. But I think the point that... Uh, that I'd like to make is that there have been a number of flood studies that have been uh, carried out in the area and now with the information that's available to us is how we better manage floods coming through the area. So it's about how can we look at uh, in this Benjeroop area, you know, how do we look at, at draining the water uh, better, what infrastructure can we put in place to, to help protect and how do we better live on the floodplain, how do we improve the connectivity as we move forward to a bit more of a hubs and spokes model uh, in rural Victoria, where our, our health centres are, you know, in Bendigo and Swan Hill, how do we enable our communities to be better connected and uh, live on the floodplain? There's a text here that I might just read. It says, Hi, Angus, we have a farm that the Nine Mile Creek runs through near Kerrang. And at, at the time of flood, sadly, this creek was somehow forgotten and there were no warnings for this particular creek. It was very sad and disheartening at the time and still is. Now, I know this is not a matter for you, Jeff, but do you think there's 
a greater need for for river gauges and official warnings for some of these what are usually minor streams but in big flood events become major streams absolutely so understanding those breakouts and where the uncontrolled uh flows are also so as the lodden comes down you know we'll we'll register that atlantic Curry. we get a good understanding there's also a bit of an understanding about where those breakouts are going to uh, occur uh particularly along like the nine mile and the nine mile was one of the ones that sort of cut the access um to to the uh, the east of Krang um, and isolated Krang in that direction, um, but there is better. I think there's better technology around now. We we're using uh, a, uh, a couple of computer programs to sort of monitor with the CMA to understand where the water was flowing. But I think it's also about that that understanding with the community because, as I said, it's pretty pretty well 12 days from Lanakuri um, to Kerrang. We get a good understanding of what's coming towards us, and it's how we communicate that to people living on those those floodplains. Jeff, thanks very much for having a chat. Anytime, Angus. Jeff Rowlandson there, Chief Executive of Ganawara Shire Council, running through, I guess, a council-wide perspective of the flooding because large portions of Ganawara Shire Council particularly are badly affected by flood water. Well, let's now go back. We'll go full circle, go back where we started. Lindsay Schultz, welcome back. No worries, Angus. What have you made of, of what people have had to say, Lindsay? Yeah, well, it's all it's all uh, exactly what happened and um, it's just interesting to, to hear their views. I touched with Lloyd Polkinghorne on levy bank management. Now, I know you're at the moment negotiating around all of these levy breaches, dozens of breaches along various waterways that are just, some of them, sitting there unrepaired. And now, I think, we've talked about this before, but there's a line in the state government's Victorian floodplain management strategy that says something like, even if those levies are on Crown land, there's, there's a problem for private landholders to repair or I think they use the term beneficiaries so those who would benefit from repairing the breach so being the adjacent farmer and farmers downstream so does that read like the state government's wiping its hands of responsibility for those levy breach repairs? You, you wrapped that up pretty well because um, that 2016 and what we're facing now is we've got all these breaches that they're going to at this stage um, are not going to repair they're only going to repair the the ones that were the man-made ones, which is was the deal originally. But any natural breaches will be the responsibility of the landowners, which is not going to work because, you know, uh, Joe Blow might go to all the trouble and fix for his properly, and then the the bloke up the road's just going to throw a few scoopfuls of dirt in. So unless we can get a standard, the only way we're going to get a standard is by having the government fund it or oversee it or there is no other way but they're going to have to fund it we've got a meeting next monday uh with all the relevant people i believe so it, we'll see what comes out of that meeting and if that that which is which looks like it's going to be it's going to be um, they're not going to do it with then we're going to have to go straight to parliament and state governments and federal governments and get something to happen because um I don't know how many breaches there is, but uh, there is a hell of a lot. All the way right back up to Leechville, um, or even, you know, down Appen South and whatever. Lindsay, there's a text on the text line that says, uh, will the farmers still keep farming on this floodplain from Kevin? Uh, so after the 2011 floods, the state government came in, they ran a buyback scheme where I think you could either opt to have a ring levy built around your house or you could sell your farm to the government and those farms are subsequently on-sold. 
What do you make of that question when someone says, will you keep, still keep farming on a floodplain? Well, that's the only place to farm, mate, because um, that's where stuff grows on a floodplain. We, um, if, you, if you move off the floodplain, uh, where are you going to farm? And we can't all be out the back of Patchewallock. <laughs> no, as, as, as nice of a spot as it is, Lindsay. Yeah, <laughs> uh, back on the levees, and Lloyd made the point before a little bit of, I mean, there are different attitudes toward flooding. You hear this sort of, some people subscribe to a, a share the pain sort of philosophy and then others say, well, I'm entitled to protect my farm and I'll build the biggest levy bank I can and then who's got the biggest excavator? So I, I guess that gets back to you saying there needs to be a sort of coordinated approach to, to the way the levies are uh, managed. Most definitely. We had this happen, you know, in two, 2022, there was a lot of levies went up that shouldn't have went up and, you know, but they're on their own property so they can really do whatever they like on their own property. But no, there's, <clears throat> there has to be a, some sort of system put into place to, you know, to alleviate. Uh, everybody's got to cop a bit, but look, it's... Um, We've never been flooded out in 100 years and we've been flooded out twice in, in 12 or 13 years. So I think something has to be looked at. I don't know the answer myself, but I think this meeting next Monday may kick things off in that direction um, because we need to be doing something soon if we're going to do something about fixing the breaches. Lindsay, thanks so much. Thanks, Angus. And thanks for having me at your place. We've just we've been broadcasting the Country Hour from the farm of Lindsay and Lois Schultz. But uh, as always happens, we are just about to run out of time, but we have got a market to squeeze in today, so let's get to markets now. And that one market is Hamilton Sheep with Chris Agnew. Thanks, Angus. Agents yarded 12,022 sheep in Hamilton this week, a decrease of some 3,002. The quality was very good to average, with not as much weight as previous offerings in an increased number of merinos on offer, together with all weights and grades available. All the regular buyers were present, but not all fully active in a market that was softer by $25 to $30 per head over most categories. Heavy crossbred ewe sold to a top of $126, well finished merino used to $98 and the weathers to $108. Light to medium sheep to average between $280 to $300 and the good merino mutton to average between $290 and $310. Hoggett sold to a top of $154 and the terminal rams made to $45. At Hamilton, this is Chris Agnew reporting for MLA. Thanks very much, Chris, and that is just about it for the Country Hour. We've been broadcasting from the farm of Lindsay and Lois Schultz, just up the road from Benjaroop, uh, one of the really badly affected parts of, of the countryside back at the October 2022 flooding. And thanks very much for listening, and thanks to everyone who came along to share their experiences, I suppose, how the, how the water behaved, the damage it did, and perhaps what needs to change if this well not if but when an event like this does repeat itself so we'll keep following that on the country hour but Lindsay tells me that downstairs there's uh, sandwiches party pies and some cakes and slices so that sounds terrible doesn't it I'm going to wrap up now and head on downstairs use time now it's one o'clock